O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy his consolations through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. This has been an eventful week. Thursday was the Feast of the Ascension, 40 days after Easter. In the ensuing 40 days following his resurrection, Jesus tied up whatever loose ends remained in his earthly ministry, preparing to return to his place in heaven. On the 40th day, he returned to his Father, where he, to this day, sits at the Father's right hand from which he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We affirm that faith when we profess the Apostles' Creed in the liturgies of the daily offices. May 31st was the Feast of the Visitation when Mary was visited to be informed that she would become the God-bearer. And we celebrate those times as we are encouraged to number our days. The lectionary readings during the Easter season allow for substituting lessons from Acts for the Hebrew scriptures, as we did this morning. Inasmuch as St. Luke in Acts describes the proclamation of the gospel to the known world of their time. So the setting for our first lesson from Acts 16 is Philippi, which is a, a city in Macedonia. Today's lesson picks up with our boys, Paul and Silas going to a place of prayer in Philippi where they encounter a woman. Sort of like what happened when they encountered Lydia earlier. Except that this woman was a slave woman with a spirit of divination which earned quite a bit of money for her owners. When she saw Paul and Silas, she cried out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She started following them around, repeating this declaration at every opportunity. Paul became a bit annoyed at her persistence. And he said, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, speaking to the spirit that was within her. <coughs> Remember that directive. You never know when you may find it useful. Paul performs an exorcism right there on the spot, casting out this spirit of divination. As a consequence, the woman's value to the 
people who owned her had become compromised. Religion is one thing, but when you start monkeying with the economics, it takes it to a whole new level. So they pulled Paul and Silas into the public square, into the marketplace, to appear before the authorities in a court of law. Most likely, or more likely, the court of public opinion. The boys were charged with disturbing the peace and likely with creating a nuisance. They received a severe flogging and were imprisoned. If the story were to end there, we might assume that Paul and Silas became a little despondent, if not depressed, after what had transpired earlier in the day. There's nothing like a good flogging that can take um, the wind out of your sails for a pleasant day. But Luke describes a different scenario in the narrative. At midnight, our boys are still going strong, praying and singing hymns to God in jail. When all of a sudden, there's an earthquake, and the chains that held the prisoners were released. With all the commotion, the jailer flies into a panic. He has some notions about where all this is heading. And if you're the jailer charged with the responsibility of all these prisoners, the prospects aren't looking very good in your favor for what's apt to happen next. So he becomes so distraught that he decides in the inkling of an eye that probably the best course for him to take is to end his life right there, saving the authorities the bother of doing it later. Because he can imagine the penalty that's going to be imposed on him for his failure to maintain a secure jail. When we put people in prison and we put people in charge of keeping them there, society's expectation is that they discharge their responsibilities effectively. And this man, from all indication, had failed to do that, regardless of the reasons. But when Paul saw how disturbed this man was, he cried out to him, assuring him that everything was cool. Nobody was leaving. Everybody was still there. And so St. Paul, who earlier in the day had been severely flogged and imprisoned, is now ministering to his prison keeper. Which impressed the jailer. And so he asks 
St. Paul, what, what might I be able to do in order to be saved? Eh? Because what, what kinds of things has to, to happen to a human being who is severely mistreated to the point of being physically victimized and abused and then placed in prison and celebrates during the time that they're in prison singing hymns and praying um, and, and um, from all indication, not showing any signs of distress. And so the jailer looks at all that he had witnessed and he says, I, 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 what can I do to be a part of that? So as it turns out, the jailer and his whole household are baptized by Paul and Silas. That's a dramatic story. It started with an exorcism that was followed by a severe beating and imprisonment. But in the end, the boys prevail. The gospel's powerful as the Holy Spirit works such impressive signs and wonders. The, the, the acts are loaded with them. Isn't it marvelous what the Holy Spirit can do? But what do you think was the turning point for the jailer? He likely had been listening to their prayers and to their singing and how it was that they just didn't get discouraged. Regardless of how grim their circumstances may have appeared to the outsiders. They were flogged and imprisoned and they were rejoicing. How's that for irony and paradox? No depression, no dejection. In fact, they were pretty pumped. When the jailer faced his own dark night, do you think that the jailer looked at their demeanor and decided that he needed what it is they had? St. Francis of Assisi once said, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Do you think that people could look in their eyes and see something different in them, wishing that the same look was in their eyes? Was it Paul and Silas's enthusiasm for the gospel and for living a life that was congruent with that gospel that may have gotten the jailer's attention and in that, his realization that there was something really genuinely different about these boys? What can we learn from them that can inform the formation of our attitude when circumstances seem bleak? and we're facing our own dark nights.
where does that hopeful spirit emanate from? As I was reflecting on this lesson, I was reminded of a lesson from a few weeks ago after Saul is blinded on the road to Damascus. And Ananias has a vision about going to a street called Straight so that he can um, lay hands on Saul and restore his sight. And how apprehensive Ananias was given this man's sordid reputation. And then Jesus says to Ananias that Saul will come to realize what kind of suffering he has to endure for the sake of the gospel. But he was not deterred by the suffering. So the narrative comes to us with a sense of anticipation something really special going on here. As our society becomes more secularized, the way in which people think about experience is really changing. And as we become inundated with secular theories of one sort or another about who we are as human beings and what constitutes the meaning of life, the more we're dragged away from the traditional and the conventional Judeo-Christian image of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And so we can look at the life of a man like, like Saul who became converted to the Christian faith such that his whole identity changed and his name became Paul. And we can look at what's, what's happening um, in, in, in that life and we can see the effects of that creation, fall, redemption, consummation, progression. The Christ event is at the heart of that redemption theme. And consummation is when it all comes together in its final fulfillment with Christ's return. Our boys were not just living for the moment. They knew that what they were involved in was bigger than, than the moment. 
because moments are fleeting and they end. The lesson from St. John's Revelation addresses this issue of consummation when it all comes together. And so when the book of Revelation draws to a close in chapter 22, John hears these words. See, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to repay according to everyone's work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You see, when Jesus went away, he declared to the people who were with him that he would come again. And he tells John that he's coming soon. Well, define soon. It's been nearly 2,000 years. Nevertheless, like Paul and Silas, we reside in that hope. Jesus is quoted in John's revelation as saying, blessed are they who, are washed, who wash their robes so that they will have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. So it is incumbent upon us during this time of waiting to prepare our hearts, our souls, and our minds for that time when Jesus will return as he went away. So there is this admonition for us to prepare ourselves. And next in the revelation, Jesus identifies himself to John and he says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And all these people are summoning Jesus to come. And the thirsty people are summoned to come to Jesus to receive the water of life. In the time in which we live, are we inviting people to come to partake of the water of life? Every Christian has a responsibility for evangelization. It's what we do. It's who we are. Because if in life you stumble onto something that's really good, don't you want other people to enjoy it too? If Jesus is the center of our lives, what Merce Iliadi called the axis mundi, wouldn't we want other people to share in that? And to be a part of that? And, and do we really believe that knowing Christ puts us on a different plane to enable us to rejoice and to pray and to praise God even when we're being victimized and abused? So are we inviting people to come and to partake in this water of life that Jesus has made available to people in his kingdom? 
And are we interested in people becoming a part of that? For a long time in Western civilization, after Christianity became the, the, the legitimated religion, we began to lose sight of the distinction and the difference between the family of creation and the family of God. And we began to see them as being synonymous. So what is it that we need to do in order to cash in on the excitement that men like Paul and Silas had for their life in Christ and the enthusiasm that they had for the gospel whereby they were willing to endure floggings and imprisonment in order to carry this gospel out into the world to let people know about this man Jesus who had redeemed the problems in the world that were brought about by virtue of the fall. And that one day there would be a full consummation of this new kingdom that Jesus came into the world to introduce. And the time to get your ticket is now. And then Jesus, in John 17, in his priestly prayer, two thousand years ago, prayed for you. In this prayer, Jesus prays for his disciples and for the people who will hear of him from them. So that they may be one, he says to the Father, as we are one. I and them and you and me. That they may become completely one. So that the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Being Christian in our time may become a contentious thing as the world becomes more secularized there's more hostility toward Christianity. As Christians, we're faced with a choice. I suppose that we can live as the world lives for today and whatever fortunes that can come our way as we sojourn through this life. That's one option. As the deacon and I were vesting on the other side and we were walking across, I said to him that um, it seems to me 
that as this society has become more secular, there are more people that consider themselves Christian that are really nominal Christians. Christians in name only. Maybe because of the ethos in which they were raised. But for whatever reason, have never fully bought into the message of the gospel. So that it doesn't affect how they live their lives on a day-to-day basis. Which kind of begs the question. Places that we go during the day, away from places like this, and people like this, do other people know that, that we're Christian? Is that apparent to the people who come into contact with us in the same way that it became very apparent to the Philippian jailer when, when, when he, from afar, watched Paul and Silas adjust to um, having been severely beaten and imprisoned? Because the reaction of Paul and Silas is not what any of us would have predicted the human reaction to be. In similar circumstances, what would our reaction be when we're called on to suffer for the sake of the gospel in the same way that Paul and Silas were called um, to suffer? Do we do that with praise and thanksgiving? Or are we, are we more resentful? Because even in the midst of our suffering, right, there's something in that for us. St. Paul says all things work together for good to them that love God and live according to his purpose. So even in the midst of suffering, there, there's something in that that is to inform our journey on our pathway to holiness. So we have the choice of allowing ourselves to become secularized and to be like one of them or We can allow the gospel to shape our lives and who it is that we're becoming every day. I started the homily, as I do quite often, with the prayer to the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit and they shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy his consolations through Christ our Lord. Amen.
Because you see that in the same way that the three Hebrew children, when they were cast into the fiery furnace, were not in there alone. Paul and Silas, when they were cast into prison, were not in prison alone. The Holy Spirit was with them, ministering to them, making it possible for them to have the attitude that they had. That wasn't about them. That was about what it is that happened to them when they opened their hearts and minds to the movement of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Knowing that there's nothing, nothing that could happen that would separate them from the love that Jesus talked about in that priestly prayer that, that the deacon read for us from John 17. Nothing. And in Romans 8, St. Paul explicitly states that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So in this week in which Jesus ascended to heaven in our celebrations of the church here. And then the next day, we celebrate the visitation where the Blessed Mother says, may it be as you say. We too, in these lessons, are faced with a choice. Do we choose to live as the world lives, or do we live with the Holy Spirit at the center of our Axis Monday? That's what the, t the lessons challenge us to do.